Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, history, and culture. Today's topic is Napoleon, military genius, despot, and lover. Our first speaker is David Bell, who is professor of history at Princeton and the author of a very short introduction to Napoleon. I want to learn from David about the continuing relevance of Napoleon as a historical figure. I want to know how he shaped Europe, the institutions he built, and his influence on modern warfare. I chose this topic because of the recent release of the movie Napoleon, directed by Ridley Scott. I want to hear whether the film was historically accurate and whether the film's description of Napoleon's relationship with his wife, Josephine, was realistic. Our second speaker will be Darren Schwartz, who is the What Happens Next film critic. I want Darren to comment on Joaquin Phoenix's and Vanessa Kirby's performances, as well as Ridley Scott's direction. Most importantly, I want to find out if our audience should make the investment to watch this two-hour and 38-minute epic. Let's get started. David, please begin with your opening six-minute remarks. Thanks to the new film by Ridley Scott, Napoleon Bonaparte is very much on people's minds this holiday season. But in truth, he's rarely been off the radar screen entirely. I think very few individuals have had as great an impact on world history as Napoleon. And while a great deal of his impact was very destructive, he wasn't a cruel monster like Hitler or Stalin. His life story was entirely improbable. It was also extremely well documented. And when you put all these things together, you get somebody who's really going to be an inexhaustible source of interest. I think it's no surprise that so many great authors, especially from the 19th century, wrote about Napoleon, Balzac, Stendhal, Victor Hugo, Goethe, Hegel, and Nietzsche, Byron and Walter Scott, Pushkin and Tolstoy. Very few, if any, historical characters have been portrayed so often on film, from Abel Gance's silent film classic Napoleon in 1927 down to Ridley Scott this year. It's hard not to think about Napoleon in mythical terms. He's Hercules, defeating all his enemies. He's Icarus, ambitiously swooping too close to the sun. He's Prometheus, trying to bring fire and illumination to mankind and being punished with exile to a barren rock, gnawed on by vultures. In this case, his English jailers on St. Helena. So eight years ago, I published a concise biography of Napoleon for Oxford University Press's very short introduction series. Most of the great biographies of Napoleon are multi-volume works. They often run to thousands of pages. I just wanted to tell the man's basic life story and to offer a brief overall interpretation. The basic story isn't actually easy to compress into just 35,000 words, which is the limit of the very short introduction series. So Napoleon was born in 1769 on the island of Corsica. The island had just been annexed to France the year before, and this gave his family the chance to send him to military school on the French mainland when he was still a boy. He trained as an artillery officer, He was commissioned in 1785, but at the time, opportunities for Corsicans in the French army were pretty limited, and he was dreaming of actually a very different career. He actually wanted to be a writer. But everything changed with the French Revolution. The fact that so many people in the officer corps either resigned or were dismissed created new opportunities for people like Napoleon. This was in 1793. So he went back to France, and there he quickly distinguished himself by helping to recapture the port of Toulon from the British. A couple of years later, he helped the authorities in Paris resist a counter-revolutionary insurgency. And so in 1796, when he wasn't yet 27 years old, he found himself already a major general in control of a French army charged with invading northern Italy. 
And from there, things moved very quickly. In Italy, he showed himself to be an authentic military genius. He had a brilliant capacity for strategy, for tactics, for organization, and for inspiring his soldiers. And he was no less brilliant at publicizing his successes with propaganda. He then followed that up in 1798 by conquering Egypt and making it a French colony. At the time, the French revolutionary government had become weak and corrupt, and that opened up the possibilities for an ambitious general to seize power. Napoleon was that general. He staged a coup d'etat in November of 1799, becoming first consul of France. Five years later, he crowned himself emperor of the French in the cathedral of Notre Dame. Now, his rule was one of the most eventful in all of history. He reorganized French government. He promulgated a hugely important law code. He spread the French revolutionary principles of civic equality and religious toleration across Europe. At the same time, though, he was a dictator. He suppressed political freedoms and free speech. He also restored slavery where he could in France's overseas colonies. He was alternately unwilling and unable to bring to an end the wars that France had been fighting since 1792 against virtually all of Europe. These wars kept growing in scope and intensity as Napoleon himself was struggling to close off the entire European continent to his greatest enemy, the British. Ultimately, the wars as a whole and the individual battles grew too large for him to control. His armies were bled white in Spain, starting in 1808, and then in Russia in 1812, they were decimated. And while he fought a strong rearguard campaign over the next couple of years, he couldn't prevent his ultimate defeat. He was defeated and then exiled in 1814. A year later, he did stage an amazing return to power, the so-called episode of the Hundred Days, but his army was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo in June of 1815, and he was forced into exile again, this time for good. These wars cost the lives of upwards of 5 million people. Now, my book sets Napoleon closely within the context of the French Revolution. It emphasizes how the revolution made his career possible, both because of the principle of equality that it espoused, and also because of the newly intensive and uncontrollable wars that it unleashed. Napoleon, as I put it, was first the product, and then the master, and finally the victim of the first total war. Now, in the book, I acknowledge the incredibly destructive things he did, but I also try to recognize why he's inspired so many people over the centuries, why he still offers us a symbol of sheer human possibility, which is why, of course, he remains so incredibly popular as a subject of films right down to Ridley Scott this year. In the Ridley Scott movie, Napoleon's relationship with his wife, Josephine, plays a critical role. What did the film get right and wrong about their marriage? The relationship was definitely central to his life, although perhaps not quite as central as the film makes it. He and Josephine met in 1795. She was a widow with two children. She was quite seductive and sophisticated. She also was very close to people in power in France. There are a lot of reasons, therefore, why he fell for her. He was still quite young, quite callow. He was 26. She was 32. The film gets that wrong right away because Vanessa Kirby, as the actress who plays Josephine in the film, is actually 14 years younger than Joaquin Phoenix, who plays Napoleon, and they didn't try to adjust for this at all. So the film gets that wrong, certainly. The relationship was very passionate on his side. It was very performative on his side. He tended to write a great deal of purple prose, and that was certainly the case for his love letters to Josephine. He was putting on a kind of act for her. But he did care about her enormously. So they married in 1795. They remained married until 1809. She was really very much the love of his life. But he did end up divorcing her because she was not able to bear him an heir 
to the throne of the French Empire. She was already 32 when they married and no longer capable of having children. The film makes this central. It gets, I think, a lot of things wrong about Josephine. There's a very crude scene right at the beginning where she actually seduces him in one of the most overt sexual ways, which somebody who was born into the French nobility certainly would never have behaved at all in that way. It doesn't portray the way he actually thought about the marriage. It doesn't give any sense really of the letters. It portrays him as really almost being in heat for her most of the time. Then it has this sort of weird back and forth where he says to her, you are nothing without me. And then she repeats it back to him and says, you are nothing without me and makes him repeat that as if it's a game of domination. She also had affairs. This pained him, of course, greatly. But the other thing, of course, that the film gets wrong is that it makes the relationship into the central driving force of some of his major decisions, when in fact he had many, many other reasons to make those decisions. For example, it suggests that when he takes power back, when he stages this return from exile in 1815, it was basically out of a desire to see Josephine again. Small problem that she'd been dead for 10 months at the time, and he knew it. I thought that the love scenes were both unconvincing in the film and actually the dullest part of the film, whereas the battles and some of the political stuff was much more interesting. Tell us about Napoleon's long-term impact on French institutions. One thing about Napoleon, I think actually, which is really important to understand, is that he always did want to pose as a civilian leader. Although he was a general and took power in a coup d'etat, he did not create a military government. He was always very careful to keep it as a civilian government. While he did preside over something of a militarization of French society, he did always try to say, look, this is not the army taking power. I am not Julius Caesar in that regard. And he did create civilian institutions. He created the Napoleonic Code. Now, this was not entirely his creation, of course. He was not a lawyer by training. The French had been trying since the French Revolution to reform what had been an incredibly Byzantine set of law codes for France. He basically brought people together and said, you're going to do this now. And he also was very clear about outlining the principles he wanted, which was that the code should be extremely simple. It should be easy to follow. It should also be emphasizing the family and property as the building blocks of French society. And the code, which he sort of promulgated, was incredibly influential. It remains the law code, not simply today of France, but of scores of countries around the world. And is an inspiration for any system that works on what we would call a civil law or Roman law basis, which is not the United States and not Britain. There's only one part of the United States that uses the Napoleonic Code, and that's the state of Louisiana because of its French heritage. But our law code and the British law code work on very different principles from the French one. In addition, he regularized the French administration, building thereupon the reforms of the French Revolution. And he brought the principle of civic equality and religious toleration across Europe. His armies not only occupied large parts of Germany, they created all these satellite kingdoms, including the Confederation of the Rhine, the Kingdom of Westphalia, the Duchy of Warsaw, the Kingdom of Naples. Spain was ruled for a time by his brother, Joseph. Everywhere that had been conquered by France, he brought the Napoleonic Code. He brought the principle of revolutionary equality. He often took lands away from the Catholic Church. And he broke down the walls of the ghettos that had kept the Jews isolated and extended civil equality to the Jews as well. In France, he created the institution known as the State Council, the Conseil d'État, which exists to this day and is one of two courts in France, which is basically the equivalent of the American Supreme Court. He created the Bank of France, the first central bank in French history. So in all these senses, he was enormously important as a political figure and as an institution builder. Was Napoleon good for the Jews? 
his record on the Jews was actually very mixed in France. So the Jews had lived under pretty severe prohibitions in France. Most of the Jews lived in Alsace in eastern France, a smaller number of Sephardi Jews in the southwest. The revolution had given them full civil rights. Napoleon continued this. He also created something called the Consistory, which still exists to this day, which is a central organization of the Jews to sort of mediate between the Jewish community and the French state. He created a body which he actually called the Sanhedrin as a kind of supreme court for the Jews. Across Europe, he freed the Jews from restrictions. But on the other hand, in 1808, he issued what were called the infamous decrees, whereby he charged that the Jews of eastern France and Alsace had been carrying out exorbitant money lending and extorting, essentially, the people of Alsace. He was doing this in response to local pressures. What these decrees did is they unilaterally canceled debts that had been owed to Jews. He fined Jews in this area quite a lot and placed the Jewish communities under pretty severe restrictions as to the sorts of business they could be involved in. So that was not a very good thing he did there. The film begins with the execution by guillotine of Marie Antoinette, and then quickly turns to Robespierre and his reign of terror. How should we think about the end of the monarchy and the resulting reign of terror to the rise of Napoleon? This is one thing that the film gets entirely wrong. It makes it seem as if Napoleon is horrified by the terror and by the French Revolution, that he sees it as a kind of bloody mess, and that he needs to bring order back to France as a result and that he lies with some of the more corrupt members of the French ruling body, the National Convention, in pursuit of his own ambition. That wasn't really the case at all. So Napoleon, in part because of his younger brother, Lucien Bonaparte, was early on associated with some of the more radical factions in the French Revolution. When Napoleon first came to the attention of important politicians, it was because of Maximilien Robespierre's brother, Augustin, who was a representative on mission in the South and recognized what Napoleon had done at the siege of Toulon. He wrote back a long list of officers who deserved praise for what they had done, but he said of Napoleon, he said, this is an officer of transcendent merit. And so Napoleon was originally associated with Robespierre, and in fact, he was arrested after the fall of Robespierre himself for this reason. In 1795, the film depicts him shooting down a crowd in the streets of Paris, and these are royalists who want the king back and he's siding with the revolution against these royalists. Two years later, something that the film doesn't actually mention, but he participates in an earlier coup d'etat, not as dramatic a coup d'etat as the one in which he himself took power, but a coup d'etat nonetheless, in which, again, the more liberal revolutionary faction purged some of their enemies from the French government. He very much was fighting to preserve the French Republic and the gains of the revolution, even after taking power. He is still insisting that all he's doing is really bringing back order and security, but that he wants to respect the revolutionary principles of liberty and equality. In early 1800, just after he's taken power, he has a series of very elaborate memorial services for George Washington, who had just died in the United States. And he uses this to draw the comparison between himself and Washington, to say to the French people, look, I'm basically your Washington. And like Washington, I will respect democracy, I will respect the republic. And it's only as he eases into power that he can really become much more absolutist and authoritarian in his rule. But it takes some time. It's not even obvious when he first takes power. The film details Napoleon's invasion of Egypt. There's an absurd cannon fire that blows up a pyramid. How important was his role in Egypt? Did he successfully expand the French Empire? It's often said that he did this in order to block Britain's routes to India. That wasn't really quite so important because 
the Suez Canal was, of course, not yet built at the time. The invasion of Egypt was in 1799, and the Suez Canal opened in 1858. Most of the traffic from Britain to India went around the southern coast of Africa, so it avoided Egypt altogether. But he did see having it as a French colony would be very important for controlling the eastern part of the Mediterranean, in that sense, for expanding France's overseas role. France had lost most of its overseas empire to the British several decades before in the Seven Years' War of the mid-18th century. He also took with him a very large expedition of scientists and scholars. We owe the discovery of the Rosetta Stone to this expedition. He was able to defeat the local Egyptian rulers. But even as he was doing this, one thing happened which essentially doomed the expedition from the start, which was that the British, under Lord Nelson, beat the French fleet terribly in the Battle of the Nile. And basically, the British then took control of the Eastern Mediterranean. This meant that Napoleon could not reliably reinforce his colony in Egypt. There was no way to actually get men and materiel from France there. In addition, the Ottoman Empire marched down through what was then Palestine to Egypt, and Napoleon marched up into Palestine and actually beat the Turks in some important battles. But he knew that he couldn't hold on to the colony. Without the fleet in the Mediterranean, there was simply no way he could hold on to it. And so he did something which was not particularly honorable, which is that he simply snuck out in 1799. He got on board a ship. He was able to sneak past the British and went back to France, basically abandoning the colony to its fate and eventually had to surrender to the British and to the Ottomans a couple of years later. In the film, they explain Napoleon's decision to leave Egypt because Josephine was having an affair. I mean, she had been having an affair. He knew about it. He was anxious to get back to France to confront her. Was this reason number one? No. Was it reason number three? Maybe. During the French Revolution, they executed the French king. This regicide upset the other monarchs in Europe. Napoleon was a man of his times. He wanted his heirs to take over his reign after his death, and he needed a son. But his wife was barren. Napoleon came slowly to monarchy. France, as a republic, as a democracy, was fighting wars against the conservative European monarchies throughout the 1790s. When he took power, he initially did not want to try to become a king or an emperor. He became first consul. A very important stage was passed three years later in 1802 when he decided to become consul for life. And it was really the problem of succession that obsessed him. He was very concerned that if the government of the Republic was going to become increasingly concentrated in its own person, then he would need to be able to pass it on to somebody else. His brother Lucien very much wanted to be a successor. Napoleon didn't always get along with Lucien, didn't trust him, didn't think this was a good idea. There was also a time when he thought he might pass it on to his stepson, Eugène de Beauharnais, whom he had adopted, Josephine's son, and whom he loved greatly and actually trusted a great deal. He actually made Eugène the viceroy of Italy. But he became convinced that he would actually need to have a direct blood successor because this was the principle that governed almost every country at the time. So in 1804, he decides to create the empire. Although interestingly, if you look at the law which formally creates the empire, it actually says, and I'm quoting, the government of the republic is confided to an emperor who will take the title of emperor of the French. So in other words, the republic, in theory, never actually ended. It simply confided its authority to an emperor. 1812, he's in Russia. He's doing very badly. And the rumor comes to Paris that he is dead. And immediately in Paris, people start wondering, what the hell are we going to do? 
And there's a general named Malay who wants to take power. And they start thinking about forming a provisional government. The one thing actually nobody thinks of doing is crowning his son as Napoleon II. The son is at that point all of two years old. But the empire is simply not firmly enough established by this point. So Napoleon abdicates in 1814. He very much wants his son to become emperor, but nobody will agree to this, even people on his side. The same thing in 1815. So his son goes off with his mother. He dies young without an heir of his own. And so it's Napoleon's nephew who takes over much later, first elected president of the French Republic in 1848, and then becomes emperor in 1852. The highlight of the Napoleon movie are those spectacular battle scenes. Why are they important? So the battles are incredibly important. Napoleon always believed in the decisive battle that would rout the enemies sufficiently so that he would be able to dictate terms to them. Napoleon was not particularly interested in territorial conquest. In that sense, he was not a Hitler. In fact, he rather reluctantly took over more territory simply to be able to control and tax it better. But he wasn't interested in France's territorial expansion. He wasn't interested, above all, in conquering Russia. What he wanted to do was force Tsar Alexander to cooperate with him. For that, he needed to crush the Russian army. So what Napoleon had hoped to do was enter Russia, meet the Russian army quickly, beat it thoroughly, and then be able to dictate terms to Tsar Alexander. Instead, the Russians kept retreating ahead of him. He finally caught up with them at Borodino, outside of Moscow, but it wasn't a sufficiently decisive victory. So he had to go on and take Moscow, but he never wanted to take Moscow. I mean, it was the last thing on his mind. He didn't intend to go that far into Russia. In fact, his army was already being decimated by typhus and by the Russian summer long before it got finished off by the Russian winter. Napoleon was really a master of fighting the big, complicated battle. And these battles were incredibly dramatic. They were colorful. They were brutal. And the movie does really capture the drama of these battles, particularly the Battle of Austerlitz in 1805. It captures one scene, which was actually a fairly minor part of the Battle of Austerlitz, where the French fired some cannon into a frozen lake in order to cut off the Russian retreat. Ridley Scott makes it the centerpiece of the battle, with hundreds, if not thousands, of Russians crashing into the ice that the cannonballs have broken. And you see these incredible shots of these people flailing in the water, which is turning red with their blood. It's incredibly dramatic and beautifully filmed. Not very accurate, of course. The thing which the film doesn't really try to capture is the scope of these battles. I mean, it makes it seem like these battles are very up close and personal. These battles involved huge numbers of people. The biggest battle of the Napoleonic period was the Battle of Leipzig in 1813. There were 500,000 people taking part in it, 500,000 soldiers. It involved masses of men marching in all sorts of directions, an incredible degree of coordination. One of the reasons Napoleon was so successful is he was such a master of organization. He was an authentic military genius. He could keep all these things in his head to a remarkable extent and be able to figure out exactly how to maneuver these masses of men to concentrate on a single weak point in the enemy's defenses. He was really a master administrator of war, working out complex battle plans, knowing the strength of the different units. There was a lot of paper involved here. I don't think there's a single piece of paper in the entire movie. Although he observed part of the battlefield himself, he was pretty safely removed from the battlefield by the time he was emperor. He would attend the battles in person, but he was not fighting himself with a sword. They have the Battle of Waterloo in which Napoleon, in the film, actually leads a cavalry charge. It's ridiculous for lots of reasons. He was terrible on horseback. He was not trained as a cavalryman. He was an artillery officer. He had terrible hemorrhoids. It didn't make him very comfortable on horse. 
But again, that's artistic license. Ridley Scott is interested in the close, tight shots of individual combat, of the men waiting for the enemy to attack, of Napoleon looking at the battlefield. So he captures the emotions, but he doesn't capture what the battles were actually like. In Christopher Nolan's movie Dunkirk, we see the British retreat from the perspective of the ordinary soldier and not from the vantage point of its military leadership. Similarly, the famous military historian John Keegan, in his book, The Face of Battle, describes what it was like to be in the trenches. The movie Napoleon gives a sense of the enormity of battlefield, but misses what it's like to participate in it. As you say, it doesn't give you their soldiers' perspectives at all. Most of the French soldiers were long-serving professionals. They were very tough. Napoleon was able to make them to march close to 30 miles a day with 80 to 100-pound packs on their back. They had a lot of experience. They were drilled. Fighting on an 18th or 19th century battlefield is actually very complicated even for the soldiers. They had to be able to move into these different formations, whether stretched out on a long line, organized into a column to march, or to form squares in order to repel enemy cavalry. This required a lot of training. And they had to be able to stand under fire. These battles would often involve long lines of soldiers blasting at each other with muskets. And to be able to stand there while a line of enemy maybe just a couple of hundred yards away blasting you with muskets, that is not easy. Every possible human instinct says, just get the hell out of there. So what made them stand? Well, a number of things. One was simply discipline. They knew that if they broke and ran, they would be flogged or even killed. Obviously, the respect of their comrades meant an enormous mountain. They didn't want to be seen to break in front of their fellow soldiers. The drill mattered enormously just to get them to practice again and again and again. Loading a musket was not an easy thing. It would take as much as 20 to 30 seconds, even for a well-trained soldier, to load the musket and to shoot it. It involved doing things like taking a cartridge with a bullet in it, which was basically a bag with gunpowder and a bullet, actually biting off the bullet into your mouth, getting a mouthful of gunpowder, then spitting the bullet into the end of the musket. You had to be able to do that while people were shooting at you. One other thing that the armies always did is they gave out rum to the soldiers to get them partly drunk, to give them Dutch courage. A soldier might be in a few battles over the course of his career, and those battles were very dangerous and very deadly. This is before the age of smokeless gunpowder. So as soon as they start firing, there are these huge clouds of gray, greasy smoke that are everywhere. They would have to contend with the fact that often they hadn't slept. They would be marching through the night. They would have to contend with the fact that sometimes if they were fighting on dry soil, the battlefield itself might catch fire. There are stories of people actually urinating to put out the fires. Their muskets would get hot from continuous firing. They would urinate on the musket barrels to cool them down. They'd be literally too hot to handle. The film is really looking at it from Napoleon's point of view and doesn't really capture much of this. Napoleon's worst defeat was the Russian invasion. The graphic design artist Charles Joseph Bernard shows a figurative map of Napoleon's army invading Russia and the very few that return. Statistician Edward Tufte called that map the best statistical graphic ever drawn. Tell us about Napoleon's ill-fated Russian adventure. So the Russian campaign, one of the greatest disasters in all of military history, certainly. Napoleon didn't want to go all the way to Moscow. He wanted to invade Russia with an overwhelming military force, most of whom were not French, incidentally. There were more Germans than French in his army. It was an international army. He intended to cross the frontier, catch the Russian army, defeat it decisively and force terms upon the Tsar. Instead, the Russians retreated ahead of him, 
basically with scorched earth tactics. Napoleon kept trying to pursue the Russians, and this was in the summertime. And the conditions were actually very bad in the summer. Again, people forget that the Russian winter was preceded by the Russian summer, where the troops could not find enough to eat. They could not find safe drinking water, getting typhus, getting dysentery, which in a large army without proper latrine simply spreads the disease. So huge numbers of people are dying already, long before they get to Moscow. Then he finally catches up with the Russians at Borodino. He defeats them, but just barely. They are able to retreat in good order. And then a large portion of the population does abandon Moscow. If you read the novel War and Peace, there are these very dramatic and quite accurate scenes of Russians fleeing Moscow ahead of the arrival of the French. But it's not completely abandoned, of course. Napoleon occupies Moscow. He goes and sleeps in the Kremlin. And then the city is torched. It's still a lot of debate about exactly what happened, the extent to which this was done deliberately. It was a largely wooden city. I mean, cities did burn spectacularly in the early modern period. Look at London in the 1660s. It's probably not a coordinated sabotage, even if there was sabotage. There was really nothing for him there. The army was already terribly weakened. So it was really a question of when he would leave. The fire actually doesn't do that much to accelerate it. So he decides to retreat. And then the winter comes early and the winter is ferocious. And you can read accounts of the retreat. I mean, there's a wonderful memoir written by a soldier named Jakob Walter, a German soldier. It's translated, it's available in paperback. Just horrific accounts of people basically dying where they stood, freezing to death, of horses being so frozen that people could actually carve meat off of their rumps and the horses wouldn't even notice because they were frozen, of everyone getting frostbite, of these absolutely horrific scenes. Finally, they reach the Berezina River and the bridges have been destroyed. There are these Dutch sappers, these engineers who essentially build these wooden bridges while standing in this freezing water, and many of them dying as a result. And the French start to retreat over these bridges, and then at one point, one of the bridges collapses, sending people into the water. It's just these absolutely horrific scenes. You can read Victor Hugo's great poem called The Expiation. And these scenes are all true. I mean, of people trying to warm themselves by opening up the bellies of dead horses and basically climbing inside. That was a scene that George Lucas stole in The Empire Strikes Back for Star Wars when Luke Skywalker does the same thing. <laughs> but if you have to save your life, that's what you're going to do. And by the time they get back across the border, back into Poland, which is under French control, they've lost probably 450,000 men. In the movie, Napoleon's greatest antagonist are the British. Why were they the cause of his downfall? Well, I think one of the most ridiculous lines in the film is when Napoleon shouts at the British ambassador. He says, you think you're so great because you've got boats. <laughs> I mean, you know, for one thing, it makes him sound like a five-year-old, which he definitely wasn't, and he wouldn't talk like that. But even so, there is something to the line. I mean, the British were so great because they had ships, and it's why they were able to defeat him. That and a small little thing which is ignored in the film called economics. Britain was France's longest-lasting enemy, and it was in large part an economic battle which depended upon naval strength. Napoleon came around to the idea that the only way to defeat Britain was to close off the entire European continent to British trade. That would strangle the British economy. Britain basically bankrolled all of the continental European resistance to Napoleon. He therefore created this thing called the Continental System to do this, but this required basically controlling the entire European continent. When you ask why the French kept the battles and the wars kept expanding, it's because of Napoleon's frenetic desire to get the entire European continent, including Russia, under sufficient control to cut off British trade. It led to huge overstretch, and it ultimately led to his defeat. The greatest French 
court painter was Jacques-Louis David. He painted during the French Revolution and then of Napoleon. In the movie, they show David drawing during Napoleon's coronation ceremony, which he made into his famous painting that hangs in the Louvre today. Tell us about David's success in enhancing Napoleon's persona. Artists in general were incredibly important in putting Napoleon on a pedestal. The images that they did, I mean, were seen by huge numbers of people. And then also very important, there were engravings done based on the paintings that reached an even wider audience. So these really shaped the public image of people like Napoleon. Napoleon had great luck with his artists. I mean, Jacques-Louis David had been the great artist of the French Revolutionary period. He then worked for Napoleon. He painted probably the single most famous image of Napoleon, which is Napoleon on this great rearing horse in the Alps in 1800. Sort of funny because Napoleon, in fact, in that campaign, he crossed the Alps on a mule wrapped in a blanket. Artistic license is a wonderful thing. David painted Napoleon in his study, showing Napoleon the great workhorse capable of ruling the empire. Napoleon knew the importance of images. He was both the visual and also written images. He sponsored newspapers. He controlled the press. He paid people to write plays about him and accounts of his victories. He was a great master of what we would now call propaganda. I end each episode with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to Napoleon? He has an incredible story. He was always, for a lot of people, a symbol of sheer human possibility. But he was also, in a lot of ways, a pretty bad guy. He knew very well, and he even said on many occasions, that his rule depended upon military success, which was one of the reasons that he fought war after war after war, leading to millions of deaths. He ruled as a dictator. He restored slavery in the French colonies. The people in those colonies had freed themselves in the 1790s, and Napoleon reimposed slavery where he could, which was really a dreadful thing after fighting a vicious race war to try to take back the colony that we now call Haiti. So the most optimistic thing about Napoleon is that in the end, he was defeated. And in the end, he was replaced by regimes that were forced, in a sense, to take the best things he had done, which was to say the administrative reforms, the law code, the civil equality, the religious toleration, and then eventually gave way to democratic regimes. But that was, in a sense, almost despite him. He's not somebody we should really be celebrating today. We can certainly mark what he did and pay attention to it. It's really an incredible story, and it's a story very much worth telling, if not necessarily in exactly the way Ridley Scott did. But again, is he somebody to celebrate? I would say no. Thanks, David. We're now going to move to our second speaker, Darren Schwartz, who is the What Happens Next film critic. Darren, this week, the assignment was to go watch the movie Napoleon. What happened? Well, thanks, Larry, for having me back. It was quite an experience. It was close to three hours of Joaquin Phoenix learning about history and the entire time being amazed that they couldn't cast someone with a French accent. Was he miscast? No, his voice was. As an actor, he was amazing. His expressions and his somber sullenness and the weird way he had sex and neighed like a horse. But just give him an accent or an accent coach would have been better. I mean, Charlton Heston played Moses without a Hebrew accent and without a stutter. Did you want someone like Peter Sellers, who played Inspector Clouseau with a French accent? Yeah. The actual runtime for Napoleon was two hours and 38 minutes, which is pushing your limit, Darren. What happened? There have been times when I fall asleep in movies. This time I went in with a different meal plan. And at the Wayfair Theater in Highland Park, they actually have real butter. And then I did have about a half of a Coca-Cola and I typically don't drink caffeine. So I was in it. I was just jacked and I was super focused. I didn't fall asleep at all. In fact, I was talking quite a bit. 
And from the beginning, it was a very exciting movie to learn about stuff that I didn't really know a lot about. Napoleon basically conquers Europe, then loses it, gets exiled. Were you rooting for him? I was rooting for him. There was points where he was seemed like a really nice guy. There's a lot of parts where he was crying. Did that stick out to you? You know, crying at the annulment. They never really showed him despotic. They showed him kind of gentle and kind while he was murdering his foes in the wars. I mean, there was a scene where he got the cannon out and just blew away the royalists. Well, I think it's fair to say, if you're not lining up against him, he's your guy. You know, he's there for you. If you're going to take up arms against him, it's going to be problematic. He's got a bit of a temper. Let's move to the relationship with Josephine. What did you see? What did you like? Well, there was a very pivotal moment where he was talking to her and in a very domineering, pseudo-sexual way, as a king or emperor would to his lady friend. And she came right back at him. She came right back at him with that aggressiveness, with that sexuality. And you could tell that he liked, you know, he liked to be dominant, you know, dominate a little bit. Who doesn't? Yeah. How about the neighing with the horse noises? I didn't understand why he had to be literally in heat. But he was stomping like around like a horse. And me, 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 me. I don't know. I'm not sure I've heard anybody else doing it. It's, it seems completely made up to me. The battle scenes. I think it was the highlight. I was incredibly impressed with the battle scenes. You had the close-up perspective, hand-to-hand, people just killing, brutal, murdering, but in a way that's like, ooh, visceral. Then they had the pan-out scenes where you saw you know, how the whole thing came together. When you think of Waterloo, you never think about victory. The word that just comes to mind is defeat. Defeat at Waterloo. But he's, even still, I was hoping, like, is he going to pull it off? Tell us about the scene with the military scout. So in a war, you have to have scouts. They ride off towards the enemy. They figure out how many people, what's going on. They ride back. But in the movie, they showed each side's scout riding on a horse with another horse next to it holding the reins. And so the question is, why was there another horse? And there's three scenarios, right? There's one, it's just a spare. Second is you want to transfer the weight. You want to switch every so often so you can go faster. And the third is it's like cover for the gunfire. But I thought it was fascinating. I've never seen that before. It was sort of a method to get there faster by taking the weight off one of the horse for a while and switching. Option two. Did you like the movie? Is it a thumbs up, thumbs down? For sure, thumbs up. You know, there was definitely some issues. Three-hour movie and the lead, because there's never the accent and trying to fit that much information in. This is the second three-hour film you've had to review. Oppenheimer also was very long. What's optimal for you? What makes Darren happy? Are you an hour 45-minute guy? Where is it appropriate? Hour 45, 215. But if it's a good topic and I get a little caffeine, I'm good forever. Yeah. And by the way, you know what I heard? There is a director's cut of this movie that is over four hours long. That's not out yet. It's going to come out, I think, on streaming. Will you see it? Yeah, but I'll just cut it up over a couple of days, probably. Why do you think they made this movie? I think that Ridley Scott's a great director. So I think they made it to make money and entertain people. What did you think of Napoleon's hat? A ridiculous hat, sideways, right? It's not even front ways, it's sideways to make him look taller. I read that Napoleon was five feet, six inches, which was the median height of the time. He was slandered as being short, but it was not true. Should we talk about some gaps? Because there are some things that we talk about that I have an issue with. 
go tell him. Just just go. They try to fit so much in. There were some transitions that were clunky. So when he came into power, they did it as like a triumvirate. There were three consuls. They replicated this off Rome. And they talked about that briefly. And all of a sudden now he was the emperor. So they didn't really talk about what happened. Did they kill the other two guys? How did that transition into that? I guess he got promoted. Yeah. I was also surprised that Josephine's lover was never killed. Was never killed. Never killed, right? And he's, he's always there. He's at the coronation kind of watching over. It was interesting because he had taken lovers. And when she asked him, he said, there's a really funny line in here. Like, so there was humor in this movie. She said, did you take lovers? And he said, of course. And she said, were they pretty? He said, some, but they cried less. <laughs> Maybe they cried less than Josephine did. Do you remember that line? What I took from that was that he didn't really have an emotional connection with his affairs. It was more just a sex thing. And what upset him was that he thought there had been a true emotional connection between Josephine and her lover to such an extent that she didn't write back. Napoleon wants an heir. He gets his mother involved. And the mother gets a low Polish nobility teenager to agree to sleep with Napoleon to see if he, in fact, is fertile. You know, this is not something my mom would ever... What did you make of that? Well, it's a good mom. I mean, to her mama's boy, this is the pinnacle. Your mom's looking out like, hey, Napoleon, obviously we're very concerned. No one really knows, is it you? Is it her? Who's infertile here? I've got an idea. We've got an 18-year-old young woman in your bed. Would you maybe like to have a couple drinks of this cognac and go have sex with her? Whatever. I'll do it. Yeah. And it works. Pregnant. Boom. Yeah. Did you ever see that comedy, Something Napoleon? Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. Yeah. How was that? It was a better movie. And what made it better? It was funnier and it was shorter. And the guy had the right accent. You've gone back to that a few times. An American accent. He was American. And if they had a French guy playing that role of the guy in Napoleon Dynamite, it would not work. Who would you have preferred to play Napoleon? Some guy who could speak English that I can understand with a French accent. Gerard Depardieu. That would have been funny. Well, no, he's not funny. I mean, he's a great actor. He is, but he's a little overweight. He's bigger than life. Darren, in modern music, Napoleon plays a role in the ABBA song, Waterloo. Your thoughts? So, Larry, I can categorically say that I've listened to the song Thousand times? No, no. Well, I never knew that was what the name of the song was. And I knew. Well, what did you think it was? I thought this meant nothing. I will say that since seeing the movie and realizing it was pointed out that Abba wrote a song, Waterloo, I've listened to it five, six, seven times, and there's nothing in the song that is any way connected in reality to Napoleon. I think it's just saying, a woman saying, I'm defeated, you've won the war.
it's not winning and losing in a relationship. There's love. Yeah, there's only losing and losing. There's no <laughs> so this whole idea that someone is gonna is win and someone's gonna lose, I think is a you know, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. I know it's early. Yeah. But the Oscars will be here at some point. Smartly, this came out you know, at the end of the year, and I think it goes through the year end, and then the the awards are what is it, March? February, March, they start throwing gold at people. Best actor, Ryan Gosling. Yeah. The Murphy guy for uh, from Oppenheimer, what's his name? Cillian Murphy and Joaquin Phoenix for Napoleon. In the spirit of having the attention span of a fruit fly, based on recency alone, hands down Joaquin Phoenix. Come on. Ryan Gosling stole the show in Barbie. He did. He stole he it. Did. He stole the show. It's almost like a Heisman. It's almost like a career attainment. Although I think Joaquin Phoenix might have already won anyways. Do you win for like the Joker? Oh, the Joker. He's been nominated before. He's an amazing actor. So okay, fine. I, I, I will. I will. Let me take a deep breath. Let me recalculate. I think, by the way, all three of those will be nominated. I think you're brilliant, hundred percent. And I think partially because we reviewed them. Exactly. We got the word out, and I think that I'm going to root for Ryan Gosling. It's like who deserves it, who wins. I think that Cillian Murphy might win. Oh, for Pete's sake. What do you think Napoleon will win at the Oscars? I think cinematography. How about Ridley Scott as director? I think Ridley Scott gets nominated. Wins or not wins? No, because I think the director of Barbie, Greta Gerwig, I think is nominated 100%. I think the director of Oppenheimer, and I think probably Greta Gerwig wins, in my opinion. Again, there's seven other movies we're not even considering that we don't even know. I think costume design, again, I think... What's interesting, I think it's going to come down to a major Barbie versus Napoleon battle. I think Barbie wins. I think so. Is there an award for animal cruelty? Not anymore. If there were, would Napoleon win? I'm thinking of that artillery shell that spears Napoleon's horse. Chest shot. And just takes the horse down. Yeah. And then I can't remember if it was Napoleon or one of his buddies gets in there, reaches into the wound, which I would never do, pulls out the artillery shell, drops it, walks off. But no, he throws it to his brother, says, give this to mother. So now for, I do want to clarify for you, but also importantly for the audience that that was not real. They did not kill the horse. That was fake. I did not know that. Best movie of the three that are nominated. And then what happens next? Movie awards. I would say Barbie. I mean, if, if Joaquin Phoenix has an accent, because then you got the weirdness and you got the sex and Josephine and the gambling and, and the, the horses. But without the accent, I think it's not even close. I think Barbie takes it. Barbie's best film, Barbie's best director, Margot Robbie, best actress, Ryan Gosling, best actor. Costume design. Oh my God, fantastic. Yeah, this is good. Yeah. Come visit me in Miami. We have a whole award show. We'll get like a room. I'll get a DJ. I don't know. Yeah, I love it. Thanks to David and Darren for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The podcast topic was making cities more walkable. Our speaker was Jeff Speck, who is the author of the classic book, now in its 10th edition, entitled Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. We heard from Jeff why some cities are more walkable, and what design changes radically improve city life, why bike lanes and active pedestrian traffic make cities more vibrant and speedy cars are so problematic. 
I now want to make a plug for next week's podcast with Gerald Posner, who is the author of the book, Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald and the JFK Assassination. Gerald has spent years researching this book and interviewed all the major living players. On this 60th anniversary of the assassination, I want to find out who killed JFK and if there was a conspiracy. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, what happens next in six minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.